0: But I want to uh, begin by thinking about um, knots. Knots. So you know you can tie a knot, you can have something that's quite knotty. Um, you could have, I think of Christmas lights that can get in a tangle, they create all sorts of knots. I can think of rope or something like that or shoelaces that you can get them all in all sorts of knots. Knots can arise in all sorts of uh, situations. Now, I don't know what your predisposition is. Are you someone who wants to make sure all the knots are untied uh, and everything is you know, just as it should be? Or do you think, oh, that's just too difficult, don't have time, and uh, you discard it, put it in the corner or something like that? Sometimes we might have a predisposition to doing something like that. We might be a perfectionist. We might be people who just cannot go on without these things all put right. Well, I know that uh, when I was uh, sailing, which I did as a sport for some years, um, and I certainly recall sailing on one boat for 17 years, a yacht called Sydney uh, on Sydney Harbour. And it was a a lovely yacht, a maxi yacht, and it was with a big crew, and I was very privileged to be a part of it with some tremendous yachtsmen, people who'd been in the America's Cup and uh, other major, major yachting events around the world. Great to be able to learn from them. One of my responsibilities was to make sure that the spinnaker came down at the right time. And usually this would be very important, particularly if land was approaching. We need to get it down at a certain point before we actually entered into a dangerous zone. And if there were not, and it was not going to come down lightning quick, well, that could be very dangerous. And people could potentially die if we got ourselves into, into great danger. So. From from my point of view, I'm quite conscious of knots and making sure that there aren't knots in lots and lots of things. But when it comes to the scriptures, there are lots and lots of knots for us. The more and more we go on and study the scriptures, the less the knots become. But we can have that same attitude of um, either trying to untie those knots in scripture or not thinking, oh, it's all just too hard. And I want to encourage you to be people who are not untires when it comes to the actual scriptures, so you can discover more and more the great treasures. But in this particular passage, we have quite a big knot. And I'm going to summarise it briefly but then show you it and we'll work through it so we see the logic of this and, and effectively untie it uh, together. But I suppose let's bring up the first heading just to give us some structure. Well, that's the structure we'll follow. Uh, We're going to look at the knot. We're going to look at untying the knot. And then we're going to actually look, I think, at the real point of relevance uh, for us. But the first part is just in terms of identifying the the knot. So let me give you a, a brief summary. A lot of people would read Mark 13 and think that it is speaking about the return of Jesus. Now I definitely want to say that from verse 32 to 37 almost all of the uh, major commentators will say that that is speaking about the return of Jesus but the first uh, 31 verses really of the whole chapter and certainly what we've read today from verse 14 to 31 um, many would also think is speaking about the return of Jesus. Now there is some differentiation in terms of views, but I don't think it is speaking about uh, Jesus. And I'm going to show you uh, why I think that. The major reason is that while it uses language that speaks about fleeing Jerusalem and there's distress, And then really significantly in verse 26, the Son of Man will be coming in the clouds with great power and glory. I mean, that sounds to me like Jesus is returning to this world. And I would forgive you for thinking that that's actually speaking about a coming of Jesus to this world. And it is the return of Jesus Christ that we're talking about. However I encourage you to look at verse 30 when Jesus says to his disciples truly I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened now which generation is he talking about is he talking about this generation our generation our generation will not pass away before these things happen he's not he's speaking to the disciples um, the original well the first four disciples um, who are peter james john and andrew and he's saying your generation and others in that generation are not going to pass away before you see these things happen so if it's referring to the return of jesus christ then jesus christ has actually returned but has Jesus Christ actually returned? No, he hasn't, because we are still here in this sinful state and looking forward to his actual return. And that's very interesting, because when you pick up Mark's gospel and you turn to Mark chapter 13, you may very well go through there and think this is all about Talking about the return of Jesus, that we are to flee. We hope it doesn't happen in the winter, because it'll be a time of great distress. There'll be people who'll be raised up who are claiming they're the Messiah and so forth, and deceiving people. You might think, well, the sun—we've got to look out for the sun to be darkened and the moon to not give its light and the stars to do all of these sorts of sorts of things. But I would put it to you that that is not talking about the return of Jesus. So I want to look at what it is talking about, okay, which is really the uh, the second the second point, which is really untying the uh, the knot, and then I want to actually look at what how this passage ends, and really I think that's where we see a very helpful point for us. So let's have a look, reminding ourselves that we've just been witnessing Jesus come up against the religious establishment; they rejected him severely and he's left the temple and then he's left the temple and he said to his disciples this temple is going to be destroyed okay so it was a big mistake by the religious establishment they rejected him and now he's going to reject them in a very major way he told his disciples not to look out for certain signs don't look for wars don't look for um all sorts of things that he uh, that, that he said along the way Um, But he also said um, that there's going to be a time of persecution, particularly between this time of 30 AD and 70 AD. That's where we left it last week. And we heard that a Christ-rejecting world is not able to stop the gospel from spreading across the world. Now we come into the next phase. And what this is carved up as being uh, in terms of what he's talking about is he's saying that there is going to be a time of suffering that will come um, and these are signs that more suffering is going to come and then the temple is going to be destroyed and he's speaking about 70 AD which I'll show you and then what we see is that there's a transition and Jesus then starts to talk about his own return so really what we go from is Jesus speaking about one judgment that would come upon the the, the temple in 70 AD. And we're actually then seeing him move on to speak about another judgment, which is yet to be realized. Okay, so that's sort of a a, a, scaffolding for us to try and understand where we are in what Mark is saying to us. But look, let's try and untie this knot. Verse 14. Goodness gracious me. These are challenging passages. There's particularly two really curly ones, okay? There's some easy stuff, but there are two really, really curly ones, okay? And we've got a curly one to begin with, okay? So verse 14. When you see the abomination that causes desolation, standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. (laughs) Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, let's just pause there, what on earth is this? I read this and go, let the reader understand, as if this is you know something I should understand if I'm going to be a serious Bible student. I go, I don't, I don't understand what's going on here. Do you understand what's going on here? When you see the abomination that causes desolation, like what even is that language? What's that talking about? Well, let the reader understand. To the Readers, uh, the, the first time readers, the, the readers of what Mark had written in the first century, they would have been thinking about Daniel, the book of Daniel, particularly chapters 9, 11, and 12. I'm not sure whether they, had cha- I they didn't have chapters at that particular point, but they would have been thinking about that because that's where that expression comes up the abomination that causes desolation. And in Daniel, we get insight in terms of what it means. That was referring to some form of profanity, um, some sort of sacrilege, some sort of um, unlawful or misuse of something that was sacred in the actual temple. And it was also speaking about the cessation of temple sacrifices. Now, in Daniel, that was actually fulfilled in 167 BC when Antiochus Epiphanes, ordered uh, a stop to sacrifices within the temples, and also enabled the altar of Zeus to be built upon the altar of burnt offerings in the actual temple. It was an abomination that causes desolation. But we are now so far further on. But it still gives us a clue as to what it's about, an abomination that causes desolation. It would be some form of profanity within the temple and would also cause potentially the stopping of sacrifices being um, being offered now what does that mean then in terms of what Jesus is saying we don't know we don't know what this abomination that causes desolation was all about there are ideas but we just don't know But evidently it was a sign something profane within the temple that happened shortly before Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD it goes on and says that this would be the start of quite a lot of suffering verse 15 let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out okay so this suffering would happen before the destruction of the temple Verse 16, let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. So we're not talking about the return of Christ. We're talking about the impending destruction of Jerusalem, the temple where God dwelt with his people. Okay, Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning when God created the world until now and never to be equaled again. So hopefully you can follow. This is the easier part, but but brace yourselves. We're coming up to uh, the big, the second curly one. Verse 20, if the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. At that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I have told you everything ahead of time. So, this is what would happen. Okay? And hopefully, you've been able to follow that. It's not going to be good. Okay? That's all we really need to understand at this point. But here, we just need to draw breath (laughs) as we go into what is to come this is where it gets really back to front okay verse 24 jesus says but in those days following that distress the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light the stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken now that is code language for something major is about to happen in terms of world history, possibly cosmic history as well, I think we could also say. It is not speaking about a climatic situation. It is speaking about a climactic situation in terms of world history. I don't expect that the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light, It's I, and the stars will fall from the sky. The event that it's referring to, I don't think had those things actually happened climatically but what it is showing is that something major is actually about to happen and we've got to ask ourselves well what is that major thing that is going to happen well verse 26 at that time people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory okay so repeat that At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. Now the history of Christian interpretation of this down throughout the ages has been that that is thinking about the return of Jesus Christ, but I've told you about the not. Okay, if that's the return of Jesus Christ, then Jesus Christ has returned, but Jesus Christ hasn't returned, so it can't mean that. What is this speaking about? Well, Daryl has read to us from Daniel chapter 9. We go back to Daniel again, let the reader understand, and see what he has actually said. What we see in Daniel chapter 9 is something that's very special, effectively describing what happened when Jesus was resurrected or ascended into heaven. Let me read to you three verses, or you can follow in that first Bible reading that we had in my vision at night that's Daniel chapter 9 verse 13 I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence so I'll just pause there He's seen one like a son of man that is speaking about Jesus coming with the clouds of heaven coming with the clouds of heaven Okay, he approached the Ancient of Days, that is God the Father in heaven. So it's not a coming to this world, it is a coming to God the Father in heaven. And when he was led into his presence, what was he given in verse 14? Authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language would worship him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So Jesus was going into heaven to seat, to be seated at the right hand of God the Father as King. He is now the reigning King at the right hand of God the Father with all of that wonderful language being so true. He has authority, glory, and sovereign power. Okay, All of the nations should submit to him, but they don't. But you see, we can't actually see that. We're told that. We know that he's ascended into heaven, but we can't see him in all of this glory. And so what we see is that in this particular passage we see an earthly representation of something that is already a heavenly reality Jesus is king he has authority he has dominion he has power in heaven at this moment but and he did in AD 70 as well but that was not seen by people in AD 70 in and on earth so when we see Titus's army, the Roman army, come in in 70 AD and destroy Jerusalem, including the actual temple, we see something that is absolutely monumental. What we actually see is the temple, the old temple, where God dwelled with his people, removed, replaced, it's history, and replaced with the new temple. And the new temple is Jesus. Jesus said destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days what was he referring to his body and the resurrection this temple he refers to himself as Jesus is the new temple this climactic event in world history is showing what is already a reality in heaven that Jesus is king and he is supreme and it is visibly showing it on earth with the actual destruction and the carnage that all of that invasion by Rome has brought. So what we need to understand here is that this is not talking about Jesus coming to the world, back again into the world. It is speaking about Jesus and all of his glory. And what we see is that it is effectively a greater fulfillment of everything that has happened through his resurrection and also his ascension. We see ultimately that Jesus is king and Jesus is this new temple. So this is what all of this is actually talking about. It goes on and speaks about angels going out. Um, it then tells us about some, some, this fig tree idea. But it goes on and says in verse 29, even so when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Some of our translations have, you know that he is near. But I don't think that's correct. You know that it is near, the actual destruction of the temple. So the suffering was anticipated, these climactic events and what we see about the coming of the Son of Man that is effectively describing the temple being destroyed. And then what we're told here is that all of those signs, Are a sign that this temple would be destroyed verse 30 I uh, truly I tell you this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened have they happened yes they have did they happen within the generation of the people Jesus was speaking to yes they have not untied we now understand mark 13 Now, if you're reading through Mark 13 in a year's time, I want you to remember this. It's Mark chapter 13. What happens if you reverse the numerals around? What do you get? What number? You get 31, right? 31. So you put the three in front of the one, and you get 30, 31. I want you to remember that the first 31 verses of Mark are speaking about the fall of Jerusalem. And it's only once you go past verse 31 That you start to see it speaking about the second coming which is our final final point it's just a helpful way because sometimes you'll be going oh I can't remember where the division was in verse 32 and onwards we really see a very very important point but about that day or hour no one knows not even the angels in heaven nor the son but only the father okay so this is speaking about the return of Christ No one knows except the father when he will return. Be on guard, that's a command. Be alert, that's another command. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, again a command, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. What I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. The language that is used is imperative language. Be on your guard, be alert, watch. That is what we are to do right at this very moment. That is what Jesus is telling us to do, to effectively keep awake, keep on watch look for his return don't fall asleep now what does that mean does that mean that we should never take our watch off the sky to see him coming uh does it mean we should never go to sleep or never lack in christian zeal or service no it doesn't mean that what it means is to live a faithful life we see that in matthew's gospel which i won't take you to now but we see that we just need to live each day faithfully. Now, what does it mean to live a faithful life for Jesus? It means to trust in him for the forgiveness of sins and to acknowledge him as being our Lord. But it also means that we should be living our lives faithfully in just the way in which we conduct ourselves. That makes sense, doesn't it? We trust in Jesus, that's being faithful, but we also need to live faithfully. The only problem is we, suck. We, we really do struggle with that second part. One person said to me something. He said, we are talking about whether one should do something or not, and he said, well, would you be happy for the Lord Jesus to find you doing that thing if he returned right now? That's a very good test, isn't it? But as I was preparing, I was thinking of all of the things that I've done that I wouldn't have wanted Jesus to return and find me doing in my history. And maybe you can think of things as well in your own, your own life. It's very embarrassing. I'm so pleased that Jesus didn't return then. But hold on, I'm a little bit concerned about when he is going to return. Maybe I'll have slipped up and I'll be doing something that he shouldn't, I shouldn't be doing and he's going to actually return. Now, this is an interesting thing. First of all, I want you to feel the weight of that. We do need to live faithful lives. Don't do things that you wouldn't want Jesus to discover you doing when he returns. Okay? Okay? Now you're going to fail in doing that, like me, in so many respects. Now let's just say that Jesus Christ returns when we're actually doing something that we didn't, you know, we really wouldn't be happy to bring out uh, to, to Jesus and showcase. Would that mean that we would lose our salvation? No. If our faith is in Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ, our salvation is secure. However, we ought to be people who see all the time to be living a godly life because of what he has done for us upon the cross now we are to keep watch we're hopefully seeking to keep watch what do you think the people out there on on market street and church street today by and large are doing are they on watch are they alert are they aware of the return of jesus christ are they awake In other words, are they faithful? Well, they're not, by and large. So they're asleep, they're not on watch, they're not alert. It's a very, very sad situation. God's word to us, specifically through Jesus, is that we should be people who are awake, who are on watch looking for the return of Christ, trusting in Jesus Christ for our salvation and seeking to live faithful lives. It's a sad thing that so many people are not in that situation. But let's pray now that we would be people who live these faithful lives and also warn others of what is to come.